Tonight's scripture reading is out of Colossians, or Colossians, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, tw- 3, verses 12 through 17. That's Colossians 3, 12 through 17. So as those who have been, been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and, and patience, <clears throat> bearing with one another, and forgiving each other. Whoever has has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, so which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Good evening, church. Right, we're going to finish up tonight with um, the month of May being about question and answers, and the question that we're going to deal with tonight has to do with, uh, it was worded in a longer question that revolved around the idea of proper worship, and inside of that question we decided to break it down to make sure that we could cover the different parts, and uh, you wouldn't be able to cover all the parts in one sermon, so tonight we're going to talk about, as it is on our extra singing night, Um, the song service in worship, and the question revolved around instruments uh, or mechanical instruments in the worship of the church. And so it's a really important thing for us to talk about, to take a moment to discuss as a church. Um, This topic has been a source of difficulty and challenge, but also unity and joy, both inside and outside of the fellowship of the churches of Christ. In fact, It's been a Christian issue since really the beginning of time of Christianity. Um, Churches all over have flown in and out of this conversation. So thinking through this, because it's a family matter, it's a distinctive of the churches of Christ that we are a part of, is very important for our health as a body here to think through this. So the question of about proper worship and instruments and not instruments comes loaded with a few... um, implications that aren't necessarily stated in the question, but I believe it's um, fair for us to think through it if we're going to be really inquiring about that. And that's the angle that I want to go at with this question tonight, is really being people who are inquiring of this and not just defending that. So the first question then is this, does God care if you worship? Now, sitting with a group of people that are gathered together to worship, that might seem like a silly question. Um, but it's a fair question. Does God care? Does, does, does He even care as the creator of the universe if people worship? And Scripture is clear about that with regards to His care for that. Jesus said it this way, that God is seeking worshipers. In John chapter 4, when He was talking to the woman at the well, and she, through her deception, through her concern, through her fear, said to Jesus in an attempt to distract Him, 
well, you people say you worship on this mountain, but we say we worship on this mountain, trying to stir up an argument over worship. Can you imagine church people doing that, right? Stirring up an argument over worship. And he said, no, no, God is seeking true worshipers. That's what he's seeking. So he does care. God really does care about your worship. Second question then is this. If God does care whether you worship or not, and he does, does he care, does he have any concept or care or concern about how worship takes place, how it happens, what actually transpires in worship? Does God care about that at all? And Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 15. He was talking to some Pharisees when he said, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you? He pulled back from Isaiah and quoted something to them when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach his doctrine, the commandments of men. And he said this, they worship God in vain. Meaning that they are directing, that their object of worship, that, that which they are directing their worship towards is God. So they were answering the first question that God wanted worship and they were giving that to God. But Jesus said that the worship that they were directing towards God was empty, was worthless. It didn't carry with it the meaning that it was supposed to carry. That's what the word vain means, is that it's not having within it the purpose or the meaning that it's supposed to have in it. And so in that, Jesus is saying that you can direct what you call worship towards God and God say, this is not really what worship is. You're, you're missing, you're misguided. So the third final question then is, how do you know? If God does care if you do worship and God does care how His people worship, how do you know? And we don't have time to really dig in and unpack all of this statement, so I just need you to um, uh, hear this. And if you disagree with it or you don't understand it, see me afterwards so that we can unpack it together. But I believe that you do understand when I say that it's a foundational belief, and I mean belief, that God has revealed to us His good and perfect will in Scripture. That, that, that's a foundational core tenet of Christianity. That God has expressed Himself, that He hasn't left Himself unknown, but He has expressed Himself to us through the working of the Spirit, and we have the writing of God, which we call the Word of God, or the Scripture. And that's where God has revealed Himself to us. And so, um, that's where we find the answer is not only does God care if we worship, but how? Like, like, how do we actually worship God? And it's a really good time to give a disclaimer to this statement as well. Just so we're all on the same page before we dig into this. That there is a difference between worship and avenues of worship. Okay? There's a difference between just saying the word worship and saying the word and understanding avenues of worship. Worship is a singular term, worship. And what it means is to ascribe to someone their worth, their value, and their high, them being the highest priority in your life. And that is based upon what is true about them. And so for us to worship, that means that we ascribe to God. What is true about Him, whether we call Him Creator or Redeemer or Savior or Sustainer, we're ascribing to Him what is true about Him. And then at the same time, we're saying, that is of utmost value to me, God. That is worth more than anything in the world to me, God. And you are the highest priority in my life. That's what it means to worship. And so to do that, 
to ascribe to him his value, worth, and, and, and priority in your life based upon what is true about him, there are avenues by which we do that. Does that make sense? And one avenue is singing. One avenue is prayer. One avenue is putting ourselves under the teaching of the Scriptures. Not, not under a person, but the teaching of the Scripture. Another avenue is through communion. And that's why it's also an avenue to say that it's worship when we give, because we're ascribing to God that, hey, what I have in my life, I know where it comes from. That's true about God. And I trust Him as my highest priority that I want to give to Him. Do you see how that's worship? Okay. So there's worship and then there's avenues of worship. And with that clarity, then we ask the question about proper worship. And there's a foundation to all of this. And that is proper worship. I, I know what the question was asking. and we'll, we'll deal with this in just a second. But proper worship can only happen in Jesus Christ. So before we get in, into any ecclesiastical doctrines of how the church operates, you know, how you and I are supposed to operate, you've got to have this foundation that you and I stand on. Paul said this way, that we stand on the gospel. Romans 5, he said that we stand in the grace of God on the gospel. That's what we do. And you and I, if we are not in Christ, and in Christ means that we trust Christ for His righteousness, that we trust that in His work and His goodness and His sacrifice, <clears throat> we are made right before God. If you don't trust that, if you don't live and abide in that trust, you and I cannot in any way, shape, or form be presentable to God. We have no shot at standing before God. And so for us to even talk about different ways and doctrines of ecclesiastical church doctrines is a secondary issue until you understand the primary, that you cannot enter the presence of God outside of Jesus Christ. You just can't. And what's so amazing about the idea of the doctrine of Jesus is this, is that first and foremost, He is the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice, the Lamb, that makes you presentable to God, but He's also not just that which makes us presentable, but He's the place in which we meet God. Remember when He said in John chapter 2 about the temple? All the guys were standing around, and He said, you see this temple? In three days, it will be destroyed and then raised back up. And what they didn't understand is that what Jesus was talking about was not the physical building of the temple. Because from the very beginning, once Moses established the tabernacle, and then under Solomon, the temple, there was a place where God met His people and worship could happen, where the presence of God was. And what we now have in the New Testament is not a place like this building being a temple, but He says... His own body, Jesus Christ, is the temple. And you and I, built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, are being built together into the temple of God. So in Jesus Christ is where all proper worship can happen. It's in Him, and you've got to trust that. And we're going to talk for just a moment about proper avenues of worship. So with Scripture as our reference or our source, for this direction. That's where we're going to find out how to worship, um, but, but we've got to understand how to gum about the Scripture. So, between your understanding and the words on the pages of Scripture, that what, that what transfers that. So, you have, you have Bible, you have the Scripture, the words in front of you, and us understanding those words. That word is called hermeneutics. It's basically the way that you understand Scripture. 
And many of the differences in doctrines that revolve around uh, Christianity have to do with the way that people interpret or understand Scripture. And all of us do it. That's why it's important that we learn how to read Scripture. That's why it's important that we learn how to interpret Scripture because all of us practice, whether we know it or not, when you read the Bible, hermeneutics. You're, you're reading it and you're making some sense of it. You're trying to. Okay, so uh, how many of you in here, if you don't mind showing your hands, grew up in the Churches of Christ, acapella? Okay. How many of you... Um, uh, if a visitor or a friend or a family member who didn't grow up in the Churches of Christ acapella could explain at least some semblance of why we don't have a mechanical instrument in our worship. How many of you feel like you could do that? Anybody? Yeah. I figured I would have a, a portion of the audience tonight that has worked their way through this, that has thought about this, that, that has heard the arguments. Um, and one of the unfortunate things that's transpired over the last couple hundred years is that very deep, thoughtful, hard theological work happened many years ago around this subject, and it sort of dissolved into really, really rote, basic, argumentative arguments that we have today. Many of us have become almost like uh, trust fund rich kids theologically. We're just living off the work that other people have done. And many of us have not done the work that we need to do to understand the depth theologically behind some of our doctrines. And that's what leads us to come up to the surface not being very deep and just fight and bicker over little you know, things back and forth and not understanding the depth of these things. Um, you've probably heard things like um, instruments are not found in the New Testament, right? You guys familiar with that statement or... The first century church didn't use them, which is an accurate statement across the board historically. The first century church didn't for many reasons. Many, many reasons they didn't use them. Um, maybe God didn't ask for them, so we don't give them to them. You've heard that argument before. Uh, how many of you have heard of uh, command, example, necessary inference? That way of studying the Bible. Raise your hand if you've heard of that. The phrase command, example, necessary inference. You've heard of that? That is hermeneutics, okay? What that means is that when I read the Bible, I'm looking in the Scripture for a command, what to do, God, an example, okay, if they did it, then I should do it, or a necessary inference, meaning they're doing something because it's necessarily inferred that they were commanded or instructed to do that. So we ought to do that as well. For example, in Acts 20, verse 7, it says that the disciples gathered together on the first day of the week to break bread. It didn't tell you to do anything, did it? Just historically, they did that. And we read that scripture and using this hermeneutic have an example that says, hey, on the first day of the week, it looks like that's what the disciples were doing. Therefore, we should do that. This is hermeneutics. And this is our most common hermeneutic in the churches of Christ. And I want to give you just a little bit of history on this so that you can kind of have a, a, an understanding of where this came from. So, about the time of the Reformation, there was a big things happening, um, both theologically and philosophically in the culture. Philosophically, there were two major um, phil philosophers that were really changing the culture. One of them was John Locke, who taught essentialism, which was basically just boil 
everything down to basic essentials that all reasonable men and women can agree upon, and then you'll never have fighting. That, that was his philosophy on life. And so that really um, was influencing a lot of the people's thinking that if we would just boil everything down to basic core essentials, then everybody could just agree and we'd all get along. The other man was a man by the name of Francis Bacon. I like his last name. And he was kind of a precursor to the scientific method. He believed that all truth could be understood and figured out if you would just do an inductive study, which is get every piece of information that you can find about something, gather all the facts, and put all the facts in front of you, and if you'll just do that, then you can summarize the consensus of the truth. Does that make sense? That was Baconian rational thought is what that was. That was before the scientific method. And so both of those things were very influential in the culture. And at the same time, theologically, motivated by the corruption in the Catholic Church, you had, coming out of that, the Reformation. And you had everybody who now was having a Bible in their hand because of the Gutenberg Press in the mid-1400s. Wyclef translating the Bible to English, the common language. Now, everybody, like all of you, have the Bible now. And everybody's reading it. And we're saying, wait a minute. What we're reading in here is not what we're doing there, and it's, something's wrong. And all of a sudden, people are saying, this isn't right. For a thousand years, the people that controlled what the church did were the few people that understood Latin, and the people that had the Bibles literally chained to the pulpit. It couldn't go anywhere else. And everybody else just kind of had to go along. And then everybody began to be empowered, and they had sola scriptura, and then a big effort to, as we mentioned last week, purify the Catholic Church. That's where the Puritans came from. And from that point, they wrote in the mid-1600s, the Westminster Confession of Faith. In chapter 21, verse 1, you have what is born the regulative principle of worship. Now, I want to say that again so you understand that phrase, the regulative principle of worship. And it goes like this, to worship God truly is to worship Him in the manner that He Himself has prescribed to us. Does that sound familiar, that language? If those of you that grew up in the churches of Christ, does that sound familiar? To worship God in a true way is to worship God the way that He has told us Himself to actually worship. That, that's in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And that's the very foundation of almost all of the Protestant churches in the world. Almost all of them. And it's at this point in the mid-1600s that if you traveled around Europe to any denomination, you would sing a cappella in the church. You would. That's what happened when you came to America and you had Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, all of them, Landmark Baptist, and all of them sang a cappella. They they, this was a powerful tool. The regulative principle was a, was a thought process by which we applied it to the Scripture, and it was a powerful tool in the hands of serious theologians as they worked to clean up the problems and corruption in the church. Let's do what God has actually told us to do. That's the regulative principle, and that's the Puritans who are the foundation of much of our theology in America. They said, let's do only what God has told us to do. Now, I bring all that up to say this. I don't believe that Timothy, when Paul wrote to him, 1 Timothy, was applying to every verse the regulative principle of worship as he read it. 
Timothy, see, had to deal with different problems. Like, how do I deal with um, Judaism trying to creep into the church? How do I deal with distortions of the gospel? How do I deal with pagan worship like Diana and, and the prostitution that was happening in that case? Because he wasn't necessarily dealing with a corrupt Christian church just yet. And so for us today, it continues, this regulative principle continues to be a very powerful tool as you and I, as we work through developing the doctrines of the church. There are so many inventions in the world. How do we decide what we ought to do? The regulative principle, let's do what God has actually prescribed for us to do. That's a powerful tool to work our way through understanding the work and the worship of the church. And so here's how the regulative principle developed a cappella singing as you consider worship. So what they did is they considered all the texts in the New Testament that speak about singing, all of them. And then they evaluate what is included in them to do. For instance, Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 14, Colossians 3, Hebrews 13, James 5. There are many others that are in the, in the New Testament. And they gathered all those texts and they laid them before them and they noticed something. That all of them told us that we ought to sing with gratitude and thanksgiving in our hearts, offering as a fruit of praise unto God, a sacrifice of praise unto God, the fruit of our lips. And applying the regulative principle, the Puritans and then many others, uh, the Presbyterians were the next big ones to really make this push. All of a sudden they got rid of burning incense in the church and liturgical dance, which is like you know dancing in the highways. And they got rid of a lot of different things. And they said, let's just sing to God. But here's the thing that they had, the depth that we're missing today. They understood the depth, the purpose, and the point of singing. You see, in those scriptures, it doesn't just say, well, God told you to sing, so you better do it. And if you don't do it, you're in trouble. That's not what they were saying. They said, listen, the voices that we use, the singing that we do, it's meant to teach each other the gospel constantly so that we never forget that as we sing to each other and admonish each other and we're offering to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, that we're reminding ourselves of the gospel. Let's constantly do that. And so from that point, we had an explosion of rich, deep theological songs. That's why we still sing a lot of those old ones because they're very rich and they're very deep. Okay, and then the second thing they did was what was not included as they looked around, they had a lot of extra things that were going on that were not included. They naturally just omitted because as what Jesus said in uh, Matthew 15, that the thoughts and inventions of human beings can be very detrimental to worship really happening. It can really hurt us. And so together, all this together, the church developed a doctrine um, that says, hey, let's worship, let's sing together in an a cappella fashion so that we can preserve the beauty of what God has given to us, the ability to communicate the gospel to each other and to express our gratitude to God. I believe it's an appropriate time to say this. Um, I checked with our elders on this because I want to make it very, very clear. Here at our family, um, based upon this study, this understanding, not because we believe that we're arrogant and right and smarter than people, but based upon this understanding, we are an a cappella church, okay? That's who we are. This is what our family is. And different people can understand different things and can think different things. 
and, and maybe even have different opinions. We could talk about those. But as a family, as a church here, one of the things that's so important, as, as we've learned, you know, as, as you're a parent, you can learn this. It's so important for the family members to know where we stand, who we are, have clarity, have security around that. And that's who we are. So this, this question is not something that kind of hovers like a gray cloud, like right outside there, and we're wondering. As far as right now, the men that are leading this congregation, we're an acapella church, okay? It's who we are, because we believe in that. Now, as I mentioned to you, as I finish here, the word hermeneutic, meaning how we interpret the Bible, when you come to a text in the Bible, and the only question you ask, the only question you ask is this, what does this Bible verse authorize me to do? If that's the only question you ask, you are drastically limiting the Bible's ability to change you and teach you and mold you. You are. Asking what is authorized is a very important step in understanding God's will, but it's like going to the Bible just as an instruction manual. Now, the Bible is a very, very important, useful instruction manual for Christians and for the church as a whole, and we ought to use it that way. But the Bible is more than just an instruction manual. It's more than just Leviticus. It's also Psalms. Are you with me? So, to think of the Bible as only an instruction manual, what it does is it depersonalizes Scripture, and what it leaves us with is a lot of academic fighting, but no really personal transformation. So another way to approach Scripture, not getting rid of the instruction manual, but alongside of it, is to look at the Bible also as an owner's manual. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, your car most likely comes with an owner's manual, right? And if you open it up, it'll probably tell you that every 3,000 miles or 5,000 miles, you should change the oil. Now, the people that wrote that are not waiting, like watching a closed-circuit television saying, I wonder if Barry's a really good car owner. I'm going to see. I'm going to test him. I'm going to say, Barry, change your oil every 3,000 miles. And if Barry does it, Barry's a good, he's a good car owner. No, that's not the point of writing that in the owner's manual, is it? The point of writing that is, hey, Barry, your car is designed to operate well if you do this. It's the owner's manual. It's revealing to you the truth about the car, not testing just the quality of the owner. Are you with me? The Bible is very similar to this. The Bible is very, very similar to this. The Bible does not just give us arbitrary tests to see if we're good at reading the Bible. It's actually giving it to us um, to tell us about who we are and who God is. So when the Bible speaks to us about ethics, or the Bible speaks about our civic duty, or the Bible speaks about morals or our sexuality, or the Bible speaks about church worship, what it's doing is not just testing us to see if we'll obey, but it's revealing what is actually good for us. It's telling us what's right for us. And so I find it interesting that the two most Familiar and common places in the New Testament that you and I read about singing, Ephesians chapter 5, 19, right? And Colossians 3 are in the context of Christian transformation and living. You and I being changed, you and I submitting to the gospel, you and I becoming new people. So singing is actually spoken of in these places as a powerful way to communicate the truth of Christ that actually converts us. And this should be done in the Christian community. We often think of singing as just an expression of our gratitude to God, but really the Bible in most of these verses says that singing is done to each other 
as an act of gratitude to God. So the value of singing, the purpose of singing, is not simply to prove to God that we've done what is right His way. He has guided us to sing because He knows that it's the way our souls actually communicate, both outward from ourselves and inward back to ourselves. Isn't it interesting that, you know, if you know some of the, like, the worst lyrics in the world still sell when they talk about things like love and, you know, I'll love you forever and I've loved you as long as the stars are in the heaven. Like, the, why does that stuff sell? Because people are singing about transcendent ideas, love. Singing is the way that our souls, who we are, communicate both from us and back to us. It's our way of transcendent expression towards that which we love and the transcendent way of expression inward towards us that changes us. And both of those can happen as we sing together with undistracted minds, humility of spirit, very careful reflection. If we consider the words we sing and think about that, and then think about who we're singing them to, and as we go through that process of reflection and say, you know what, as I'm singing about Jesus Christ being my all in all, I'm not really sure He really is, we can repent and we can change and we can convert and we can confess all in the process of singing. That's how it can happen. So the point of singing is not just simply to be entertained, which is one of the greatest distractions that Satan has brought into the worship of the saints. Nor is singing just a way for us to express our self-righteousness, which is also a distraction of Satan. Singing is our opportunity to encourage each other and exhort each other with the gospel and express to God what's true about Him and begin to believe further and further about things that we are not yet believing in that process of singing. So that's um, my best shot at trying to explain the regulative principle and the way that we approach singing in our worship. We're going to sing right now a song that expresses a truth about God. And as you sing it, I want you to think about what actually is being said about God, about us, that we ought to learn in the process of singing this song. And as you sing it, ask yourself this. Is this true about God? Is this true about me? And if it's not true about you, let's make that right about you tonight. Come as we stand and sing. <laughs>